to the Radical Brilliance Podcast with Arjuna Arda and brilliant guests from around the world who are contributing to the evolution of humanity. Today's guest is Alex Ebert, who's going to talk to us about celestial archaeology. So here's your host, Arjuna Arda. Hey, welcome back to the Radical Brilliance podcast. Today's guest is my favorite musician on the whole planet. I first heard the song Home years ago. It's got such a rich, full-on sound. It's like something you've never heard before. I'm sure you know Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. It's such a sound of celebration. kind of takes you back to the 60s, but it's also completely contemporary at the same time. It's like something that's never been done before. Then I heard another song that I liked even better. It's called Man on Fire. It's an incredible anthem to the to living wild, to living free, to not being sucked into the status quo of business as usual. You know, I've been really lucky in my life. Sometimes when I get really inspired by somebody, I get a little pernicious about wanting to make a connection. So I sent off an email to Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros to the band's agent. I must have sent, I don't know, 10 or 12 email. I was just determined that I wanted to meet Alex Ebert, the founder of the band, and do an interview with him. I did the same years ago with Leonard Cohen, by the way, and got to enjoy a really rich relationship with Leonard while he was alive. So it took a long, long, long time of sending emails, not getting a reply. Yes, we'll get back to you. But finally... Edward Sharp and Magnetic Zeros was coming to Reno. They gave me some tickets and I was able to get backstage and do the first of many interviews with Alex Ebert. By now, I've interviewed Alex a whole bunch of times, in person, by Zoom, lots of ways. And there's going to be many, many different podcasts with Alex Ebert during this podcast series because he has so many interesting things to say. Not only did the band produced some incredible music as Edward Sharp of the Magnetic Zeros. But also, uh, Alex has written the, um, the soundtrack to um, several movies. One of them is All is Lost with Robert Redford and also the, mu- the movie A Most Violent Year. He's an incredibly versatile musician. But perhaps more important than that, Alex has a lot of really original, out-of-the-box ways of thinking. In other podcasts later, we're going to hear a bit about his political views, which are completely revolutionary and on fire. And today, this is actually a recording I did with him on Zoom. So the sound quality you'll hear reflects a little bit of that kind of zoominess. But I wanted to share it with you because he's talking about how original new ideas and new creativity in music comes out of nowhere. He calls this celestial archaeology, and you'll hear that he just, he has this way of just reaching into the unknown and pulling back a fragment of something like an archaeologist. So he reaches out into the unknown and he comes back with a bone and then another bone and then, uh, and then a vertebrae, and he keeps pulling things in and finally he's pulled down enough pieces of this 
mythical creature that here's now a huge bird and you can jump on the back of the bird and fly. I love this analogy of celestial archaeology because exactly how it is for me when I write fiction or, uh, or writing Radical Brilliance. It was just like that, just reaching into the unknown, pulling back a fragment, and you continue doing that until it becomes coherent. So this is a wonderful, incredible conversation with perhaps one of the most creative, bright, original minds alive on the planet today. Please enjoy this deeply. I think you'll find it very, very inspiring to your own sense of radical brilliance in your own life. The first thing, actually, let me jump. I'm going to jump into a question I've got later on is I want to come back to a conversation we had, we've had twice before about co-creation, you know, because there's something happens with you and your band uh, where that you've talked to me about this before, where kind of something takes you over and, and, and you're all of you become kind of almost like the body has different organs, but it's one body. And there's something happens when you guys are playing together. I saw that in Reno when I saw you play where like, you, you're all you're all being moved by the same force, like a bunch of ducks. You know, when, when ducks move together, they all move together at the same time. So just just jam for a little bit on what that's like to be to be taken over by something when you're when you're playing with a group of other people. I think in a group setting, the feeling is like hopping a train. There's a great little moment in a Buster Keaton movie called, I think. Um, the general or something and there's this spinning house uh, that's being spun by a storm and he needs to get inside the house but the house is being spun so quickly that the front door keeps moving by too fast and he jumps and he hits the wall and then falls and then jumps and hits the wall and then finally he jumps and he jumps right through the front door and he gets in and that's sort of the feeling of um, of catching that sort of train uh, with with a group and and you can feel yourself get sort of snagged up by it. And once you're in that sort of groove, um, it's quite easy to stay in it. Mm. Um, you just have to stay present. Mm. And, um, and actually the way to get in it too is almost like fishing. You just keep staying present, keep staying present, keep being present, keep being real, keep following your instincts, and then it's suddenly happening. And it's like catching a fish or something or catching a train. Or, yeah. Mm. I remember um, a concert I went to of yours in, uh, it was the Wavy Gravy concert. You remember? Oh, yeah. Birthday for Wavy Gravy. And you were doing that song, uh, you don't call it exactly Namaste. What do you call it? It's like, it's... it's Om Nashime. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyway, you're doing that song and there's a long kind of instrumental section in the middle of that. And I, it was really palpable when you were doing, when you were playing that concert that you guys were just, you went into like a trance state where you were, you were obviously like really taken over and the, the, the band members were kind of being drawn into that. So, um, yeah. So what, what happens in moments like that? You know, what's, what's going on when... Well, I mean, they're, they're set up, they're designed to be they're designed to elicit that response from us, from the players of it. So the, the, that song 
has those moments built into them. Um, and I think that that's one of the brilliant things about, and the things that make me want to continue writing songs or writing music at all is that you can craft things in such a way that they're almost a formula for transcending a moment. And that's pretty special, you know? Um, and that's not to say it's manipulation. It's actually what I call celestial archeology, span where you sort of, you find the wing of an animal and then you go into space or you go down and you come up with the leg and you go down and you come back up with the spine and you just keep dusting this thing off until you've put together this beast that can wing you anywhere in the universe. And it's, um, and when you find those kinds of songs, they almost always work. And that's to say that they, are, they exist now out there in the ether. They've been put together by you and the band. And whenever you dust them off, there they are animated and they take you um, as long as you give yourself over to it. So almost always Om Nashime takes me somewhere, but I have to let it. And sometimes I even have to force myself to let it. And that's an interesting place to be. Um, early on in the band, that was, there was a fire to us. Uh, that that we talk about in the band a lot that we don't have anymore. And what that fire was, was us forcing ourselves into a place of freedom. Um, and that forcing required an energy akin to anger um, or akin to something born out of frustration and uh, confrontation. Confrontation with yourself that is reluctant to jump and uh, to shake yourself into jumping and sometimes requires that sort of that fire. And so our earlier shows were full of this almost sort of like punk rock um, gone hippie sort of like confrontational fire. Um, and, uh, and we miss that. We talk about it a lot like, oh boy, those good old days when we were, when we were so sort of, in need of uh, self-liberation that we would uh, sort of just force it. Uh, it was an interesting time. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> that's really, you, you're really uh, in the groove today, man. That was really great. That was some uh, the very, uh, you're waxing lyrical there. <laughs> yeah. I remember also, uh, I mean, that, that quality you're talking about uh, of, of that kind of slightly angry, frustrated, you know, ah, it comes through a lot in Man on Fire and Jangling as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lyrically, especially Man on Fire. Um, Man on Fire was, was written, I had just taken a walk in Echo Park. And I've always felt, I'll just never forget this moment. Echo Park sort of inconsequential to the story, but um, I've always felt like uh, I could fly, basically. Like I had powers that I was not, accessing because I was so enwrapped and um, and sort of self-cloistering myself in so society's sort of anxieties, society's anxieties. And, um, and yet I knew and always felt like I could do more. I've never been um, satisfied with myself and also that, you know, uh, thereby lens um, 
lends permission uh, to also be unsatisfied with everybody around me um, because I throw myself into the, uh, into the mix. It's not, uh, it's not an egotistical sort of uh, dissatisfaction with everything because I'm also dissatisfied with myself. Mm-hmm. So I was walking home and, you know, everything from war to capitalist greed to uh, whatever. Um, uh, just being whatever, fraudulent with yourself. And I walked back into my house and I sat on the couch and I was fuming at nothing. It was an existential fume. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I immediately just picked up the guitar and started uh, writing those words. I'm a man on fire walking down your street because I was just walking down your street with one guitar and two dancing feet. Only one desire that's left in me. I want the whole damn world to come dance with me and then dance over murder and pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, it's a song of transcending the human conditions uh, by forcing yourself uh, to do it because we can, not because it's, uh, you know, this idea of sort of forcing or will to uh, become better. Um, is uh, is something is a theme throughout my life that I'm only now starting to sort of feel like I'm getting to a place where I don't need to feel like I'm forcing myself into the next phase of my life. Um, but uh, if I'm to be honest, I would say that uh, even if I'm not forcing myself into the next growth phases of my life, I am being forced mm. by circumstance of one kind or another. Yeah. You know, let, let me ask you a little bit about the relationship between Alex Ebert and Edward Sharp, right? Because uh, actually, it's, there is, a, there is a, a marked difference. Like when I'm talking to you now, there's even a different voice. You know, when I talk to you now, you sound like you're from Southern California. But Alex Ebert, I mean, Edward Sharp kind of often talks and it's kind of, you know, like Southern accent, you know. <laughs> oh, y'all, you know. And, and, it, and it feels like, I mean, particularly Man on Fire, uh, it, I've seen you perform that a few times, and it, it often, you know, it feels like it's, a, it's almost kind of mosaic or, or, you know, like evangelical. It's kind of like somebody, somebody come in, like, like it, it, just tell me a little bit about, does it feel like a, does it feel like a, a persona you adopt, uh, almost like, a, like an actor in a play to bring a certain message through? Um. It's interesting. I mean, I, so I have, I actually feel like I can denominate myself and myself into two places. Um, And they're not Edward Sharp and Alexander. Um, They're um, intellectual and street. Um, And uh, right now I'm being intellectual (laughs) with you, but I, but I, but I, uh, I was having dinner last night at a fairly, fancy house and um and was was aware of myself saying y'all um because i was in this sort of other context that wasn't street streetly and um and now that i live in new orleans i can't quite tell where um where one thing began and the other thing ended because now i'm i'm sort of am in a southern culture and have been for a number of years um, but so what you your question harks back to what I had just sort of 
spoken about, which is this idea of forcing myself into another phase. And when I first was starting Edward Sharp as sort of a real thing that I was really focused on, I had lost myself creatively, personally, um, my own personal traditions, my own sense of who I was, um, was gone. I had no instinct, as a matter of fact. I didn't know if I wanted spaghetti or French fries. Um, I lost that and I, in a very trackable way and, and in a way that I already knew exactly why I'd lost it. I'd lost it because I was making art for other people. And I was succumbing to the notion of sort of that mix, that, that intersection of, of, um, of capitalism and art. And art. Um, I sort of let process, which is really the capitalist arm of art, um, out-negotiate content um, and, uh, and was following this sort of path of process, i.e. working with certain producers and making songs a certain way and trying to sort of compete. And this is, was all with my band, I'm a Robot, especially the second album. And, um, and I'd really lost myself. So anyway, I was in this place where I didn't know who Alex Ebert was. And I had this band that I had formed in my mind and had written this book uh, about this guy, Edward Sharp, who was a messianic figure who was sent to earth to save the world, but kept getting distracted by women and falling in love. And so um, the the angels that be would take him away and then send an uglier version down that wouldn't that women wouldn't like so that he could concentrate. But then he fell in love. And so they kept having to send these iterations until they send down like just this blob. Um, and then even he falls in love. And um, and it's sort of just this <laughs> this funny story that that I that I that I personally related to a lot um, as as sort of egoic as that sounds but um and i was just sitting there sort of like okay well i have this i have this character or this name in my mind um and i've made music under that moniker before i don't know what that moniker means but i am in this place of complete loss and complete sense of desertion and um and i started imagining myself coming back from that and imagining myself reborn, um, not unlike a messianic figure. And I think that we all um, go through those kind of periods where we, we, you know, some of us, where we feel lost and then we feel like we must become reborn. And for me, one way to do that was to, as I say, throw the football far ahead of myself and then force myself to sprint to catch up with it. And that's what I did with Edward Sharp. I projected the being that I wanted to be um, out ahead of me, far beyond where I was personally at that time. Um, I projected a freer, um, more confrontational, more liberated version of myself uh, into a vision of the future of me. And then it was my job. I took it upon myself to sort of play catch up to that vision and force my body to hurry up and get, get over there. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
and that's the way it's been most of my life with most of my sort of progresses is I, I project a vision of something and then I work to um, embody and live inside of that vision. Um, and for me, that's what Edward Sharp was. So in terms of the, the sort of the swag or the, the sort of uh, persona that I might have on stage um, with Edward Sharp, I would attribute that more to um, relaxation. Uh-huh. Um, and that would be to say that I'm probably not as relaxed now as I am when you see me on stage. Because for me, being there's nothing worse than being on stage and being anywhere other than completely relaxed. And by relaxed, I mean you suddenly end up in this sort of like, Oh, and your tongue starts to talk a little different and you're like, hey, how you doing? So if I started talking to you like this, you know, that'd be a pretty weird interview. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like when I'm on stage, that's what is required is to just let everything just sort of become mush because otherwise it's just unbearable. Um, so that's what you're seeing on stage. If you're enjoying this podcast with Arjuna Arda and his radically brilliant guest, you might also enjoy our eight-week online group coaching program. It's an opportunity to go deep and get stable in practices that enhance your own brilliance. We only take 20 participants at a time, so in a small and intimate group, you can go through the whole radical brilliance cycle. You'll have an accountability partner and another brilliant aspirant from somewhere around the world. The eight-week coaching program involves eight one-hour webinars with Arjuna Arda and a group of other Radical Brilliance coaches. You'll also receive one 30-minute coaching session with your own personal coach every week and one 90-minute coaching session with Arjuna himself. It's the ideal opportunity to drop deep into yourself, into the source of your own creativity, and to get support for an entire eight weeks of mining your own radical brilliance and bringing it forth into a project or creation that can truly serve the future of humanity. Find out more at RadicalBrilliance.com and click on the Programs tab. You know, the, the, what comes through on stage, so whatever Edward Sharp is, you know, whether it's, whatever you it, it, and you, you talked about this anger and frustration, and actually the music that your band produces, it often has a kind of a very subtle political, social drive to it, like, like um, Life is Hard or They Were Wrong. You know, those are, those are songs that they're, they're not, love songs they're not even indulgent songs they're songs of they're really songs that that leave you with a feeling of social change so how do you feel about the relationship between music and art and the state of the world today it's interesting i was just uh i was just putting together a letter 
for City National Bank. City National Bank is the bank of choice for the entertainment industry, and they happen to be bought by Royal Bank of Canada, who uh, are still uh, financing the uh, energy transfer partners who built the Dakota Access Pipeline and who are building all these leaking pipelines everywhere. And um, and I went about getting um, signatures on this letter. And um, the actors, they sign up right away. The musicians of all people are the ones that, 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 that are more f- sort of wary and frightened, it seems, of, of signing up. And, um, and I got some great musicians to sign up. But uh, I think that, I guess my point is that I think music has become, again, I keep having to bring back sort of commodification and, uh, and that intersectionality of capitalism and art. But you remove capitalism from art and every artist will be as, you would see a complete change in the expression and the, the freedom with which people expressed their desire for social change. It is only the constraints of attempting at popularity constantly and and being in that game of sort of of commerce that sort of puts the kibosh on um on political or social change imbibing itself in the music so these days you get a political song and it's uh and it's completely enshrouded in like poetry so that no one can really tell the meaning so that they don't really offend their base that's in Texas or Uh vice versa. And, um, and you end up with that a lot. Whereas actors, I think uh, experience more intermediation because they're playing, they can always blame something on the character they're playing or there's the movie house and then the script and the thing and the thing, and they hire this actor and you appreciate their acting because you don't like them. You don't like Matt Damon's politics, but you like him when he's on in The Martian. And he, they get to get away with this sort of thing because they're constantly putting on these things. But musicians are supposed to be exactly who they are. What they express on the street is who they are on stage. And, um, and so I think they get a little more afraid um, with that disintermediation to express their true um, desires. For me, however, precisely because musicians tend not to do that is precisely why I tend to do that. Mm -hmm. Because as a creative person, I look for the gaps Mm -hmm. in the artistic fabric of society. Mm -hmm. Um, When I wrote home, I knew, and Jade and I had sung it, I knew that this was something that had been missing from the cultural fabric of society for at least 30 years there was something called earnestness in it and that had been banished. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a big hole. And when you see, when you th- see things that have gone completely out of fashion, it's only a matter of time before those things come back. Now we'd written it with all our hearts. Like I, I made it just, it was a pure song. And when JD jumped up and sang Alabama, Arkansas, she, it was, it was a pure, she, she, in fact, she hadn't written it down. She was lying on this bed, popped up and was like, give me the mic. And she said, Alabama, Arkansas. So it was a pure expression, but in reflection and looking at that song, what we had just made, I immediately recognized that it, it was going to serve a purpose. Um, and that purpose being to fit 
into an empty box, basically, that society had either abandoned or forgotten about. A love song that wasn't completely riddled with sexuality, a love song that was all about sort of, that was entirely earnest mm. um, and uh, not about a breakup or, you know, really sort of just this earnest yeah, tones yeah. of friendship. And anyway, so as an artist, that's what I look for. And still, now, even with Trump in office, the biggest gap missing in, I would say, all art is political voice or social change. Mm. And so that gives me a great opportunity constantly to be of service. Because the reason why I never wrote Home Again or a four on the floor with a bunch of haze and a thing that you know, everyone started doing um, after that and, and you know some other bands, uh, really us and Mumford, is because I, it, now it was done. Now everyone's doing it. So I didn't want to capitalize on on something that was popular because now it's already done that's no fun for me as an artist it's filled now mm. that whole that whole part of the canvas is complete mm. now i look elsewhere and see where are there gaps where can i be of artistic service it's great it's brilliant yeah you know i, I often reflect that the most radically the most radical political position you can take is not rebellion or anger but gratitude you know when you're mm. actually overflowing with gratitude and celebration they can't touch you you know they mm. can't say you anything when you're happy they mm. can't they can't piss you off you know you're, you're actually you're most uncontrollable and you're happy and i think that's for me a lot of what home is about you know it's it's, mm. it's a love song but it's also just a, a pure overflowing celebration of what's already here you know that's that's exactly why i started writing the book on cool is because not only is it rebellious in a vacuum but it's particularly rebellious in the context of a society that is afraid to be happy because happy isn't cool. Because when you're really happy, it's very hard to be super ironic. When yeah. you're really happy, you're, gen you're generally sort of, um, yeah. sort of eager and, uh, and, and, um, um, and earnest, yeah. um, which is the opposite of sort of, irony and sarcasm and everything that we hold is sort of rock and roll yeah. and um and so when you know when when people would sort of be like ah oh, that that sort of hippie band and miss the point that in my opinion we were the most punk rock band out there because we were doing something entirely contrary yeah. to the mainstream sort of flow of irony and sarcasm yeah yeah and actually your, your latest album has got several songs on it that have that same quality, like uh, Ya Ya and Wake mm. Up Sun. You know, those are mm. all like super happy songs. You know? mm. Yeah, yeah, and I and yet I like Wake Up the Sun is a, a, a ruthless attack on religion, um, and uh, you yeah. know, so it's like you know, again, uh, the reason why you know, two stories. The two most dangerous songs I feel like I've ever written are Wake Up the Sun, which felt, I was just ready to say what I wanted to say about that. Uh, at the time, people's, you know, I mean, the war on terror and terror itself, you know, terror, the, the terrorism of war on terror and terrorism itself that the war on terror was terrorizing over were suddenly reaching frothing 
levels. Uh, the beheadings had just started when I was writing those, you know, the online, the online beheadings that ISIS was doing. And um, I don't want to pray, right? What's that? The other one would be I don't want to pray. That's right. Yeah, the other one is I don't want to pray. Yeah. Um, and uh, but the reason I don't want to pray was one of the most dangerous songs I'd ever felt like I was written was um, not the words I don't want to pray, but I left my God, God made saying the word God, because where do you, you, you hear like, oh my God, you hear it in sort of, uh, um, you know, colloquialisms in songs, but you don't hear it in any sense in, you know, something earnest in a pop song or, mm. you know, in bands these days. And again, because dabbling and all that i mean it's 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 funny but the the power of social anxiety and peer pressure um in the artistic community is is really fucking profound um so if it's the culture to be um sarcastic ironic um non-committal um whatever whatever it is uh, atheist um you really don't dare go against that uh, unless you want to fringe yourself sort of permanently. Um, but I am most comfortable at the fringe, I think, or at least I feel most relevant to myself mm. at the fringe. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I have a chapter in this book that I've just finished called Don't Try to Write a Bestseller. And it's mm. mostly about that. That chapter is mostly oriented to, to the written word. But I, I, I'm talking that chapter how when you, when you aim, when you write something aiming to sell a lot, you're actually catering, catering to the mainstream. Uh, yeah. So you're basically aiming, you're, you're, then now you're aiming at, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians and the, and the, the shopping channel, you know. And, and so the, the best way to eradicate brilliance from your work is to try, is to aim to sell a lot. You know, which is that's, exa that's exactly how I lost myself. It's... It, it, it's it's thinking of the audience. And, and when I was writing Cool, the first, uh, I was engaged with my best friend who wanted to, who, you know, I, I sort of engaged to, uh, to, to co-write it with me. Um, it's about five years ago now. And he is a professor um, and, uh, and, you know, had just gotten his PhD. And uh, the first thing he wanted to talk about was who our audience was. And I refused to talk about who our audience was. It was driving me crazy. I didn't want to even think about who our audience was. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because for me, that has traditionally been the, the, the entree into the biggest traps of, I've ever encountered in my life where I end up thinking about who the audience is. And within a couple months, I might as well be uh, dead. Mm -hmm. Like, because I'm just suddenly like, I don't know where I stand, you know, because I'm writing for other people. And um, I think musically, that's especially tough. Um, thinking about your audience and all that. It's, it's again, sort of this idea of, uh, of capitalism and popularity and whatnot. And yet you can argue that you're being of service. So that like, if your audience is, if you're writing a children's book, for instance, you want to know, you want to keep in mind that you're writing it for children, right? Um, otherwise, it's not going to work because parents, you know, you probably curse or you say something that kids shouldn't hear or that would be odd. So I think that, you know, there's this fine line of, of 
knowing what direction, what tone you want to speak in, and then really focusing on the success of how that would go boil over. And I think it's a dance that artists have to do constantly. Mm -hmm. um, is, you know, balance, balance between your own voice and, uh, and who you're speaking to. So when you're not writing for your audience, when you're not, when you're not trying to, you know, get a Grammy or something, then who are, who are you answerable to? Like, you know, what, what is the, where is it that you look to know that you, you did a good job if you're not looking to your position on iTunes or something? Do you understand what I mean? It's like, yeah, of course. There is some way that you measure the worth or the, or the goodness or the brilliance of what you've done. But if you don't use marketability as that measure, it, it comes from somewhere else. The only measurement I know of that is pure is the elation I experience upon witnessing my own works of art. Mm -hmm. The elation that I experience. And usually it's the elation I experience while in the midst of making it. Mm. Um, and then there's one other um, sort of metric which is that I've experienced, which is after having made it, you don't recognize it as yours. Ah, great. Well, that would be to say that, and this might speak to sort of potential self-loathing, um, but where you've made something that hindsight being 2020, you recognize as perfect, but you have this dissociative, or for me, whenever that happens, I have this dissociative sort of experience where I don't recognize that, that I did that. Um, I, it, somehow there's uh, the linearity um, of the process is chopped somewhere between putting it out and then re-experiencing it upon rereading or, or re-listening, where when you experience it, it feels sublime as if it came from somewhere else, not from you. And I think that speaks back to this idea of celestial archaeology, where you've you've created something that already existed. The blueprint was there. You just dusted it off and animated it. And now it's this thing that is its own thing. It's not yours. Um, it's no longer even really your voice. It is this thing that already existed and it thanks you for helping it exist. And you are always connected to it uh, by creation, but your own personal experience of it um, is that it, came from somewhere else and that's um that's it's always fun to be in awe of your own creations um and i think that all ego and whatnot uh, aside to be in awe of your own capacity to be in wonder about the things that we're able to be in touch with and able to create is that metric if you experience wonder at yourself or wonder at something you've made, that's the metric. And that's the same experience I have of being in love with someone for the first time. Um, it's this complete jubilation. I mean, I've written songs 
and then run around the house screaming, going, yeah, thank you, you know, and, and, and in total celebration by myself yeah. at having arrived at some sort of animal that came from somewhere else and just being very happy to be putting it into existence, you know, yeah. Oh, so awesome, wow. That was it, man, you just did it right there. <laughs> Came right through, you know, I, I just want to, I know this is an interview where I'm asking you questions, but I just want to share a little story with you in front of it that you'd enjoy because I, one of the great good fortunes of my life is I, I got to know Eric, um, Leonard Cohen uh, before he died. You know, we, we, we spent time together and I can remember one time I was sitting in his tiny little apartment in uh, Westwood in Los Angeles and like his table was, you know, like one of those tables where you could just put one chair on each side, you know. And we were sitting there and we, I was talking to him about 10 new songs. I don't know if you know that album. It came out in mm. 2002. And I was mm. saying, you know, Leonard, this, this album's amazing. Like, oh my God, you know. He was just like, oh yeah, 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 like that. And this, we kept this up for about half an hour where I was trying to persuade him what an amazing album it was. And he just kept like, it's just a bunch of songs, you know. And finally, after half an hour, he said, he gave up and he said, you know, I guess you're right, he said something really did come through mm. that album, you know, but he, he couldn't actually take credit for it because he knew he didn't create it. Mm. It was more like the messenger, you know, mm. the, the, that it downloaded through. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a, yeah, it really is this sort of, I, I just, archeology span is the way it feels to me. Yeah. I love, yeah. I love that term. Yeah. That's great. It's brilliant. Yeah. Um, I wanted to jump subject for a minute. Um, so I know that you, I remember before you went on stage in Reno, you pulled out a drawer in your uh, bus and, and, and you had a whole bunch of supplements. And I, one of the chapters in my book is about su supplements, I mean, legal supplements uh, that um, enhance creativity or, or, or presence. So I'd like to ask you a little bit of what you found most useful in terms of you know, nutritional supplementation, both for the creative process, but also for um, transmission of brilliance in a concert. Mm. Well, for a concert, a concert is a bit different because it requires total relaxation. There's, there's two ways that I've experienced to um, that open field of access to the universe um, of your own brain and, and the universe itself. One is total relaxation. And then the other is um, total freneticism. Um, and they seem like polar opposites, but they can sort of arrive at similar places. Um, when I need to think and write, especially writing, I prefer to be um, very, 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 very uh, energized mm -hmm. and, and to have my mind sort of extremely sort of alert and stirred. Um, and so, you know, for that, um, there are, there's the myriad things from caffeine on to, you know, um, like I have, I have these caffeine pills now that are, um, slow release, 
that release like 100 milligrams throughout like the course of four hours. Um, and I, I hardly use them because caffeine's a vasoconstrictor and, um, and I don't particularly want to cut off my blood flow. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, you know, green tea and whatnot and, uh, and things like that. But there's, you know, there's things that I find useful. The, the substance within green tea, L-theanine, um, is, is cool. There's stuff that I got into that uh, is legal, but it's not on the shelves, um, but that I think are really pretty potent and powerful. What, one of them is on the shelf, this uh, vin, vinpositine and things like it um, are, uh, they're basically choline uptake accelerators and, and ginkgo biloba, which, which stirs more blood to your brain. Um, but so your brain eats this choline and, um, and you may have seen me pull out this stuff called uh, choleracetam. Paracetam you can get off the shelves. Choleracetam is this sort of special stuff you have to get from, you know, a place and it arrives and it says not for human consumption and, you know, it's from a lab. Um, but I, I, I was taking that stuff for a little while, but it can deplete uh, your uh, choline. So you have to eat, you know, egg yolks and whatnot to replenish. So lately I just haven't been dabbling and have really been uh, finding that calorie restriction, uh, I guess as some people call it, or just basically not eating that much, um, puts me basically in a state of heightened alertness where I basically have a surplus of energy that feels like I'm sort of on coffee and it's almost jittery and gives me that sort of extra energy that might force me to sort of feel jittery. But when I sit down to write or I go to work on something, um, it starts to sort of manifest itself as that extra energy that I need to focus on stuff. Um, so these days I'm really not too sort of supplement oriented, except that I'm sort of taking stuff to, to, uh, to eat up excess, excess estrogen and things that are more sort of hormonal balance sort of stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, and I guess I'm in a constant state of ketosis, as they say. So like my brain is, mm. is functioning not on sugar, but on fat. Mm. Um, That's so, intentional, right? I mean, you, you've studied ketosis? I've studied it a little bit, but uh, I'm, not, I'm certainly not like a, a master on it. Yeah. But uh, the diet that I've been basically doing is something where you avoid something called uh, lectins. And lectins are sort of the overarching problem with food that gluten falls under and within. Mm. And uh, all plants and animals to have lectins. Some plants have it more than others. And lectins are this sort of protectant that will screw up your stomach intentionally. The plant creates these lectins within their proteins to avoid being eaten. Right, but, right, yeah. But humans just sort of eat them anyway. Yeah, um, grains. Like gluten is a biodefense mechanism. for Exactly, yeah. exactly. So when you avoid lectins so far for me, I've been feeling very, very, very good. That said, you know, yesterday I had to, you know, it's that old problem of like, uh, you get invited over for red beans and rice, and then are you going to be the guy that says, "No, I don't eat red beans and rice"? You know, it's like it was a it was a dinner with Drew Brees and this great doctor, and Drew Brees, the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, and it's just like 
I'm good. And the red beans and the reason they're even there is because this red beans and rice is supposed to be the best red beans and rice that's ever been made. And everyone corroborates this story that this lady makes the best. You got to try it. So, you know, you don't, you don't, to me, it's not my sort of rigor and strictness with myself has, has largely left. And I'm, I'm just trying to sort of relax and be generally healthy. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, before going on stage, to be honest, um, and I don't know if I need to do this anymore. It's really, you either need to meditate, for me, I either I need, need to meditate and be, get into a place of total relaxation. Um, and I can do that in a number of ways. Uh, some are very easy, like defocusing my eyes and focusing just on space. So I'm never looking at you. My, I, I might look like I'm looking at you, but I'm actually looking at the space between my computer screen and you. And suddenly you are what you focus on and suddenly you are just consciousness. Um, or that's my experiences, you know, a lot of the time. And I use that a lot. Um, but lately I ended up sort of as things progressed and I got more exhausted, I would end up smoking weed. And the reason I would do that is not to relax, is actually the opposite. I would smoke weed to become as paranoid and socially anxious as I could possibly froth myself up to be. So that I had no choice before I went on stage but to completely relax. Because I was finding that I was getting so good at relaxing that I could go on stage sort of half relaxed and get away with a pretty good show. But that wasn't real raw me. I needed to completely relax. But if I, don't, if I don't need to completely relax, then why do I completely relax? Because completely relaxing is a real process. You have to, you have to go and meditate and, and, and really go for it. And then you're there and then you can still get away with not being completely relaxed. So instead, I found this weird thing where I started getting as socially wrapped up and anxious as possible so that I was so paranoid to go out on stage that I had to completely let everything go. Kitchen sink, the whole thing out the fucking window. Oh, and uh, and, and it, it was a technique that ended up really working because if I, when, I, when I'm stoned, if I, if I do anything but relax, my mind is a complete minefield. Um, so it's one of those things that keeps me like where I have to be completely relaxed. Otherwise, I'm in total danger. Whereas when I'm totally sober, I could easily inch over to not relaxed and be fine, but not, but not sort of keeping myself in check at total relaxation. It's an odd sort of thing, and it's not like I'm recommending it to people, but it's an interesting, uh, interesting. It was an interesting sort of mode of relaxation. Yeah. As you're listening to this conversation with Arjuna Arda and his radically brilliant guest, you might feel inspired to go deeper into your own expression of radical brilliance. Come join us for a one-week Radical Brilliance Laboratory held in a beautiful rural location in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. During the laboratory, you'll have an opportunity to dive deeply into all four quadrants of the brilliant cycle. 
This means you'll be able to explore experiences of consciousness without boundaries. And you'll be able to start accessing original impulses of creativity from within yourself that can become your unique contribution to the world. You can get in touch with your own learning and integrate mistakes that will allow you to mature and grow. You'll have the chance to deeply mine your own resources as well as connect with other brilliant people in a small, intimate context for a week. You can check out the Radical Brilliance Laboratories at RadicalBrilliance.com under the Events tab. I've got another chapter in this book. Uh, the, the, the title of the chapter is The Supplements That Daddy Will Not Allow. Mm -hmm. It's about entheogens, you know. Uh, about what? Entheogens. Entheogens, what's that? Um, an entheogen is a substance, well, the best examples of entheogens would be LSD, psilocybin mushroom, oh, sure. 2CB, you know, also MDMA. So, um, Basically, I've tried to unravel a little bit this whole nomenclature people have about drugs. You know, this person's on drugs or the war on drugs. Because actually, the word drugs has come to encompass so many substances, some of which really are, you know, not, not a good idea, like heroin or methamphetamine or cocaine. They're like, you know, they fuck you up. But, but LSD seems to be, you know, from where I can gather, just, you know, purely benign, good for you, zero toxicity, zero addiction. Um, MDMA has been really effective in reducing PTSD, you know, psilocybin mushrooms. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your attitude and relationship to entheogenic substances. I mean, ev almost everyone I know, without exception, has had their lives benefited um, from entheogenic substances, um, including myself. And the reasons are still being discovered and studied. And, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, some great, great people putting a lot of money actually into studying what, what it is that happens uh, with the brain and connectivity and, um, and what it is that unlocks. I know that psilocybin has been studied, uh, the brain has been studied while people are on psilocybin, and it, it turns out that the brain is just basically smarter. There's areas of the brain that suddenly light up that never do. Um, and it's not like those areas light up and other ones go dead. Like, you're basically using more of your brain. People have uh, a lot more experiences of... of um, um, uh, psychic ability and, and, and connectivity. And, and I've experienced that too. And, you know, the, the reasons for, um, sort of demonizing, um, these things are all based on, well, two things, one misunderstanding and then misunderstandings perpetuated by, um, subcultures that are sort of easily viewable as um, as as too rebellious or as you know as um, as irresponsible, um, 
And those are all superficial, you know, uh, viewpoints based on superficialities like, like a beard um, or like uh, bell bottoms. Uh, things like, especially in the 60s that happened that, uh, you know, uh, people and people were kind of talking kind of dumb and, you know, and, and, and so mainstream culture, it was very, very easy to sort of just write all that stuff off as, um, as crime, basically, mm. um, and as dangerous. Um, and of course, you know, part and parcel with, uh, especially in the 60s, was the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and especially the anti-war movement got very wrapped up in you know uh, uh they were sort of part and parcel with with lsd and and weed and um and so that sort of rebellion all got lumped into the same thing and it all got sort of misunderstood and then you had you know uh some interesting folks you know like uh, leary and whatnot and, uh, and 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 people really throwing it in mainstream culture's face, um, in a sense, and really sort of parading the oddity around, um, and 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 almost trying to be uh, offensive. What's kind of cool is that, uh, and I, and while I completely understand the the urge to uh, shove that stuff in in repressive faces because oppression is just so unbearable that, that it's a, it's a common response. I mean, it, it's the, re the response I generally, the knee jerk I generally have. But what I like about these days and what I'm seeing happen, um, that a number of things are facilitating and, and not that I'm a burning man type of guy, actually, cause I don't, it's just too exhausting to, to sort of, I'm just not, I'm not into partying for seven days. Um, but, uh, what's happened where sort of that intersection of Silicon Valley and hippies and acid taking and businessmen and politicians now like all um, sort of colliding in this sort of like acid drenched um, ecosphere um, has changed the entire sort of attitude towards all of these drugs. Um, and now I have a lot of, friends uh and know a lot of people who wear suits every single day um who have done acid and speak about acid and just in terms of like ah yes it was really good acid um we had you know and it's and it's very it's not in your face um there's nothing sort of rebellious about it it's about self-discovery and that those same folks are now you know moonlighting over in peru and going to do ayahuasca ceremonies and it's sort of easy to make fun of that and sort of the 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 things that luxury can afford um these sort of these sort of people but at the same time you got to sort of tip your hat and be thankful that um that it's entering the mainstream culture in such a way um, where it's being looked at as a almost an essential quality to, you know, as a culture, we've lost so much of our coming of age uh, traditions. Uh, there's no walkabouts. We have no Sundance. We have none of these things. And yet people are now discovering their own ways to um, have self-realization moments that include uh fear i mean essentially when you take a substance like that there's there's not no fear 
you you're jumping into some unknown and that is a crucible um of some sort that where you have a reckoning with yourself and your own fears and your your, your ideas of self-control and then you know if you do the right substances the arc you tend to have is one of um, a little bit of fear you have to let go you have uh, some it's just the classic arc of sort of self-realization um, and then coming to terms with things and then having an amazing time and and then uh, and then walking away with some takeaways that uh, improve your your scope uh, and widen your sense of of who you are in the context of the world I mean it's like it's it's pretty much a no-brainer yet still de demonized but what I think is going to happen um, more and more is that uh, the federal government's views on these things are going to start to become more and more irrelevant until they basically are irrelevant and they, the, the laws get sort of lifted. Um, because the folks that are coming into power and that are of utmost influence um, are going to sort of just not have a problem with it. Uh, you know, we're seeing a a dying off of the generations that are sort of averse to uh, that kind of exploration. And, uh, and one thing that, you know, we've seen too in the last 10 years, I think, is the mainstreaming of spiritualism, where spirituality as a, as a word and as a concept uh, is no longer just for hippies, but for um, the totality of, of, you know, for all up and coming, for entrepreneurs, for, for the Silicon Valley folks, for folks on Wall Street, for uh, businessmen, everyone's reading and talking about uh, uh, having transcendent experiences and spirituality uh, like it's uh, no big deal, you know, and I, I love that. I love that it's sort of everywhere. And I, I honestly think that that change has happened maybe even less than the last 10 years. Um, I've, I've definitely witnessed it happen over the last 10 years, which means um, it's probably expedited over the last five. That's pretty cool. I have a friend actually who, um, who's one of the most sought after executive coaches in Silicon Valley who works at all those big IT companies. He estimates 30% of the IT workers in Silicon Valley are microdosing regularly. Oh yeah. Yeah, right. So microdosing is like, yeah, I mean, you know, and it's, it's, it's funny because it's been taken, even, even linguistically, it's been taken out of the context of sort of crime and, and, and oddity and microdosing is like, you know, it's like a phrase, it's total control. You take a, like a 10th of a hit or a 20th of a hit every single day mm -hmm. and you just do that and you feel it's a supplement. Yeah, you it's, know. it's a productivity enhancer, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's it's a pretty cool time. I really, I dig it. Yeah. Have Have these kind of substances been informative to any of your music? Are there Are there particular songs that you know that you felt you you could attribute to? Things? No, not specifically to any songs, but. Uh, experiences certainly that have uh, earlier on when I was in college uh, when I was 19 uh, psilocybin had some eye-opening effects on me that I ended up writing a bunch of songs about and thinking about a lot I still think about them when I was seven years old 
I had a, uh, a easily the most vivid hallucination or vision um, that I've ever had. I don't expect ever to uh, have another vision quite as mm. as intense. And I was seven, and I wasn't on any substance. But subsequent to that, in my adult life, that has that experience has been referenced a little bit for me through the use of uh, particularly psilocybin. Um, but for me now, it's not, it's like, you know, I did uh, acid once and- In your whole life? Yeah, once, one, one full dose in my whole life. And since then I have, I have done like two or three days of microdosing. But for me, hmm. acid is, my my experience of acid was so profound mm. that afterwards i felt like i would be any use of acid for me after that felt like it would be um inconsequential and unnecessary i i got the i felt like i got the full download i still feel that way and any use of acid from here on out feels to me like it would be recreational. <laughs> and I don't necessarily feel like I need um, a recreational experience of acid. I have plenty of friends that do it um, regularly and, and, you know, and I could be totally wrong and have another, you know, full all out sort of like aha moment. But um, for me, it's not come up yet. And that was, about 10 years ago. So for me, so far, I haven't had the need uh, or urge to do it again. Yeah. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Yeah. Uh, listen, I've got, I'm going to just um, throw a, a whole bunch of, of keywords at you and just see if any of them land. Because this book, the book I've written is really as comprehensively as possible. I'm, an exa I'm examining what are the, what is the, the soil in which brilliance can most easily um, bear fruit, you know, and, and that's why I'm interviewing you because I think your, your music is, you know, extraordinarily original. So I've, I've, I've included a whole bunch of factors and I'll just, I'll just read them off and you can see if any of them are significant for you. So one is sleep patterns, you know, like playing with or, 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 or bringing some discipline to, to sleep patterns, uh, taking vacations, like taking long breaks, uh, sex and the way you use sex to practice. Diet, we already talked about supplements and entheogens, uh, dissolving belief, sitting meditation, prayer and devotion, like calling on a higher power, um, having role models and mentors. Uh, we talked already about, about not mainstreaming. So, um, yeah, so I just wonder if any of those keywords just stand out as, 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 as elements in your life that have really helped you to be yeah. original. Two of them. Um, I meant so. This is a this is a cool time to have this conversation for me because I feel like I'm now entering a different phase where I can't physically withstand the uh, practices that have um, helped me before um, because they actually are fairly detrimental to the physical body. Um, but like what? My, well, um, you mentioned a couple things. Uh, when people ask me, what's my sound? How do you get your sound? I say rushing. 
my the 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 engineers that work for me actually it'd be funny to interview them because i'm curious what they would say but i know that it's not like i can hear them sort of chuckle or and then if enough months go by sort of get flustered because i have zero patience for protocol or process throw the mic up give me the fucking mic i need it right now because this moment is when I need, the moment is more important than the miking. I need this moment right now. I need to say what I have to say right now. I have to hit that snare right now. I have this idea right now. Forget process. I need to capture this right now because that's the most important thing. Is it recording? Great. Is it recording? Are we ready? Are we ready? Is it ready? Great. And then they, they fucking hate it because their whole school of thought is to get something sounding right. And there's my, my partner, Nico and Edward Sharp, just loves just taking his time with the mic placement and places it right in the thing. But you know what happens when you do that the right way? It sounds like everything else. Yeah. So I end up through rushing, having this sound that sounds unique. Oh, so that's one. Russian. That's, I thought you said Russian. When no. Rushing. I was waiting for for what Russia had to do with no, it. No, 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 no Trump, no Trump hidden hidden gems there. No, just just rushing. Yeah. Um. So rushing is a is a thing for me, and what that tells the story that that tells for me is that when I wake up and if I have inspiration, that that thing is to be followed and to be completely honored in this, in, in the, somehow these things come and then the, the inspiration to do them is there. The idea may stay, but the inspiration to do them may start to evaporate or it may start to mutate, or you may start to be like, ah, well, maybe we'll do it this way. But if you rush, to, to the idea and you meet it as soon as it happens and you make sure, I mean, I've, I've, you know, Rome, my ex-girlfriend and baby mama, uh, has this sort of impression of me that she'll do. It's a, she's basically making fun of me, but she'll, she'll say, and she hates it. Um, and I think it, it actually ruined our relationship to a large degree. But I would just run in and out of rooms and not really say hi to anyone. But it would just be to go, get from the studio, to go to the kitchen, to get a snack, to come back. But I couldn't engage in anyone because if I did that, it would be a whole nother world. I need to stay in this world and keep fostering this world and whatever this thought is and keep going on this thing because otherwise I'm going to sort of lose the, the sort of the atmosphere uh, that I'm breathing, which is this song or this thing or this idea. And, um, and so there's, there's nothing very healthy about what I'm describing now. Another thing that happens is the loss of sleep um, and the total fixation uh, on, uh, to the point of sort of an, an OCD um, calling to constantly be creating. And if you have an idea, then you need to spit it out. But if you don't have an idea, the idea is waiting there for you and you need to go work it out. And so you're up all night and then you're up too long and your brain doesn't have time to rest so you don't sleep. And then suddenly you wake up the next morning and your body is aching and you're in bad shape. And you, you can end up in this weird physical pattern where the time you get to be 38, which happened to me, I uh, suddenly was... Um, 
physically ill and had to take a break. So then the other thing that came up for me is taking a break or a vacation. Um, so there's three, there's three things I would say um, that and, and th some of them are contradictory. One is rushing to the moment. And I don't mean just rushing in general, but rushing to the inspiration. If it happens, you rush to kiss it. You rush to embrace it. You, you make it happen. That, in my experience, um, though, makes you can make you a terrible partner can make you sort of uh, a slightly absentee father um can make you fairly annoying as a friend um because you have to leave a conversation and go write something down um or suddenly you know you're hanging out with friends and suddenly you're like okay great we've talked long enough i, I this is we've now experienced hanging out and i have to go now because i have to go work <laughs> and that's the, you know, and a lot of my friends have expressed that sort of discontent with me. Um, and, uh, and then the other thing is uh, taking vacations from it. So it's very important to um, go be the art yourself to me, you know, so to run around and, uh, and be wild and in re-inculcate yourself with sunshine and, and, and running around and, and, and that wisdom, um, which is how, well, I think I, last time I talked to you, you were just about to take a vacation on your own. I remember. Yes, you. I was going to, and I haven't yet. I think yeah. you were trying to go to Mexico or somewhere by yourself. I did go to Mexico by myself actually, but I ended up, uh, I ended up with a bunch of people and still haven't done that and want to. Um, but the other thing I the other thing I think that is um, these are all destructive things incidentally so so rushing is so, is fairly destructive to to the sort of common flow of life um, being sort of like completely obsessed with something obsessive compulsive sort of behavior with creation is fairly destructive to outside life and then the other thing that is incredibly uh, potent for creativity is um, when your outside life is destroyed in some way, when there's upheaval, um, when you have a breakup or you have something painful happen or you're having to deal with someone, you know, with a death or with um, whatever it is. Um, uh, very often we write about what we're trying to discover, right? Like we're, we, I, I write about uh, the book on cool because I'm trying to figure out why society feels so fucked up to me. Um, and so I'm in a place of a personal upheaval. So I begin to create, um, and you know, and that is not to say that I believe that art can't come from a happy place or a place of joy because actually what I experience while doing, as soon as I engage and embark, I'm in a place of joy. I'm almost very, very rarely am I upset while making something unless I'm sad but it's usually a kind of longing or love sad love sickness um and uh, and romance behind that otherwise i'm in a place of pretty pretty exhilarated place of creation because that sense of meeting the inspiration going down and coming up with an idea um is so exhilarating especially when you give yourself over to um, entirely honoring it and making bringing it into reality um, but it's really exhilarating but what I've found lately is that it's unbalanced 
Um, and I think that if I'm not mistaken, a lot of the folks throughout history that have been um, single-mindedly creative had personal lives that uh, were a bit unbalanced. Uh, might, you might even say unhealthy, you know? And Steve so I think... Example, yeah. What's that? Steve Jobs would be a good example of that. Who's yeah, just... Steve Jobs, Mozart. Uh, I mean, you know, like you got the, uh, the sort of... Um, you know, it's a, a Philip Glass. Um, the the room for other things starts to shrink, mm. and uh, and one thing I'm sort of grappling with now actually is relationships. Um, and there was this quote: "You can have, you want a great passionate sexual relationship." You want great friends that you hang out with all the time, and you want an amazing career that you're very passionate about, but you can only have two of these things. Mm -hmm. um, so which are they going to be? In my experience, you can have one and a half of those things. Um, what were they again? It was like romantic sexual love. What's romantic that? sexual relationship or partnership. That's one. Uh, friendship, deep and personal group of friends and friendship with people. Right. Or, and a uh, an amazing sort of uh, passion-filled career. Who says uh, you can only have? Who says you can't have all three? Well, my experience is that uh, my experience is that to be balanced. Um, and I'm just getting into trying to be balanced. So we'll see what happens wow. with my my experiment with being balanced. Yeah. But uh, my experience so far with being unbalanced is that um, <laughs> mastery requires repetition on the order of excluding a lot of other things in your life. Um, and that exclusion shrinks the rest of your world uh, and, and concentrates the thing that you're sort of trying mm -hmm. to master. Um, now we'll see if maybe, you know, uh, more ideas and more fertile ground end up sort of coming up more often because I'm paying less attention, almost like maybe like a, a relationship where you're sort of, sort of non-attached and, and the other partner is sort of like, well, what about me? And maybe, so maybe my inspiration will start to sort of ask me, but my experience in the past is that when I've ignored my instincts and my instincts can be anything from get up you have this idea but when i've ignored my instincts eventually they've gone and kicked rocks they've been like the dejected boy who can't get attention from his father anymore and and so disappears and gets a motorcycle and runs off to africa or whatever and then suddenly you're like wait where's the, where's my kid where's my inspiration and and you ignored it for too long yeah. So it's a, it's a period of my life where I'm going through right now, exper experimenting with balance, mm. and uh, and reacquainting myself with the idea of just hanging out and just not being creative, and experiencing friendship as the creativity. Yeah. Um, but we'll see how I uh, how I fare. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy dropping by radicalbrilliance.com. 
We've got an ebook for you which explains the radical brilliance cycle, the way the cycle gets blocked, and the practices that best open up the cycle again. We also have five days of gifts and insights for you, delivered every day by email and video, which go much more deeply into the phases of the cycle, the ways that the cycle can become a kind of diagnosis of blocked brilliance, and a way to accurately find the right practice for each person. In addition, you'll receive a video about the single most important practice that we have determined affects brilliance, and another video about everyone's favorite topic, brilliant sex. It's all totally free, prepared for you as our guest. Please come to RadicalBrilliance.com. Register on the homepage and you'll receive the ebook right away. Then you'll be guided through the five days of videos to take you deeper into your own radical brilliance. It's a very interesting question you raised about this choice because uh, actually, when I look at that list of three things, um, at the risk of sounding rather self-aggrandizing, I, I feel I've got all three of those <laughs> really, really um, raging, or all, all of them are raging. I mean, my marriage is incredibly romantic and sexual and fantastic, and I've got great friends, and I'm totally a man on fire with my work. So, mm. uh, yeah, there's hope, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, there is. I, I can I can feel it. I guess there's a there's a There's probably just like a fire needs oxygen and space. Um, there, there, there may I may end up discovering that as large as the fire I can sort of allow to rage within me, around purely focused on uh, creativity, um, that perhaps it can rage uh, higher and broader and and farther um, with a little more space. Um, mm. My hunch is that that's not the case but i'm at a place physically where i need more sleep and i'm longing for more sort of relaxation and more out more time outdoors hmm. um that i'm going to sort of force it upon myself regardless of the outcome sounds yeah. that's great yeah. hey i want to ask you also you know i think you understand what i mean by brilliance is this this way that something comes through you, you know, and you step out of the way and it comes, and that's when you said you've got to rush and get it while it's there, you know. So brilliance for me is that something comes through you that's not imitative, it's not repeated, it's not learned. You're actually, you're actually being like a vehicle for something you don't know what it is. And I'm just, if, if you understand brilliance that way, I'd love to ask you, who, 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 who is there that's alive today who most, who most inspires you as brilliant? It's it's difficult to tell because I, I I would have to I think be privy to their process because I think as you describe brilliance is 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 um, a moment in time it's a rush of feeling so my perception of what might be brilliant um, 
it's difficult to tell if they're what they're experiencing while while creating it. Well, let's uh, measure it just by the fruits. Let's not worry how, how it got there, but just what 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 is what is being produced today in any media that you find just takes your breath away. Well, I find I find certain lone instances mm-hmm. of. Um, where I feel like I can detect someone breaking through and not giving a shit anymore. Because really what we're talking about in brilliance is, and that's why, that's why I like the idea of sort of rushing. We're, we're talking about danger. Mm. Um, we're talking about taking chances um, in my mind. And so um, when I, and this is, uh, an actor I'm going to bring up when I was sort of witnessing Joaquin Phoenix go through his thing with uh, this, this sort of rapping thing and the documentary he was making. Yeah. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. Pre- preceding that he was a great actor. Mm-hmm. I, I would say he was a, he was a good, a very, very good actor. And then he makes that movie and he goes through this weird personal time and it's Okay. I just, you know, I don't know what he's going through, but he's he's basically having some kind of meltdown or a, or a self-induced meltdown, whichever the case, doesn't really matter. He comes out of that and does this movie, um, with the name, uh, The Master. Um, and his performance in The Master, I hadn't seen something like that since Brando and Last Tango in Paris. I, I was completely electrified mm-hmm. by his presence. This was a man on fucking fire. I didn't know if he was going to grab the camera. I didn't know what was going to happen on screen mm-hmm. at any moment. And that's really what I look for in any artist is, are they eschewing everything that shackles you? Uh, from your truest, most potent self. Um, because really, when you eschew those things, all those things you're eschewing are safety nets. They're all little pieces of safety. Uh, posturing, posing, speaking a certain way, these various things are all little safety nets. And when you see someone dangling up there on the tightrope without a safety net, you can immediately tell there's no safety net. And that's always the most electrifying place to be in not only personally um but as a viewer i think or as a as an experience um and i've got to say that uh, no one else is coming to mind at the moment in terms of either music um in terms of uh you know i'll i'll be tickled i'll be tickled by some interesting things but i can always tell and I'm not going to name these things by name because I don't want to sort of offend them, but I can always tell, I'm thinking of some musical things right now, mm-hmm. that as cool as they are and innovative, mm-hmm. they are all a part of some enclave or subculture. And if you're a part of a subculture, you're abiding by strictures. You are abiding by certain rules yeah. that that subculture um, mm-hmm. Is, is sort of ostensibly sort of putting forth that you're abiding by and therefore you're not free. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't sense your danger because you're, you're, you have your audience in mind, um, you're pleasing that audience and you're propagating this subculture 
which means that you're surrounded by sort of these rules and, uh, and you're propagating them. And I can sense that. And even if it's a subculture of a subculture of a subculture, it's still safe. Yeah. And you don't get the sense that they're out there in the middle of the ocean experimenting just them and God, and that's it. Wow. And that's the only moments that I really find compelling. Awesome, man. That's great, yeah. You know, there's a, there's a young woman, early 20s, just recently uh, emerged called Maggie Rogers. Have you heard of her? She did a song called Alaska. Mm -mm. Okay, check her out. I think she, um, she, she, like you, she reminds me of somebody basically alone in the middle of the ocean, just right. the song Alaska, which is a great song. She actually wrote it while hiking alone in Alaska, uh, trying to get over a breakup of a relationship. So she was just alone in the wilderness and this song came through. She was recognized by, she was kind of discovered by, who's the guy who did Happy, you know? He's a great musician. Pharrell? Yeah, yeah. Pharrell, what's his name? Pharrell Williams? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he discovered her. Oh, cool. She's extraordinary. She's really, you can just feel she's just being herself. It's like mm. she, she can't fake it. You know? That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 that's, that's what I look for. And we've had the, them throughout. I, I must say also, though, about myself, I don't keep my ears or eyes to the ground I don't I don't know very much about what's going on and what's cool and whatnot I just tend to um, presume that anything new or hip that's coming out is abiding by the rules that I've keep seeing everyone abide by even if they're subculture rules and uh, and um, so yeah you know even even the coolest things that are out there right now that even you know that my friends love um, just kind of won't do it for me unless I, there was a band I remember called the mean reds. Um, and when I'm a robot was touring warp tour, this little, this little group, and they must've been like 16 at the time. And they were just fucking on fire. Did not give a fuck. They were really, really fairly inspiring to me. And that's, that's sort of one of the last times that I sort of felt like I saw something live uh in music where i was like wow this is um this is not manicured in any sense of the word this is not um this is this is raw energy and i just i just love that and i have a hard time appreciating things that aren't that even if they're total masters and it's just masterful masterful music or masterful masterful whatever I can have a hard time appreciating it. It's interesting. Hmm. Um, yeah. Hmm. Cool. <laughs> yeah. I'm running out of uh, things to ask you. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome, man. I, pre I appreciate it. And, uh, and uh, it's nice to talk about these things so nakedly, you know, um, especially the, um, the point where I'm at, where I, my body is sort of like, broken down from working so much. I mean, like I, I'm writing those two books and I'm, I have two app apps that I'm building. I have something called the new IRS.com, which I'm working on rebooting and it's going to be in co concert with this, uh, 
this organization called taxrevolution.us and we're going to work to try and pass legislation in Illinois where people can reallocate up to $500 of their state income taxes to 501c3s, which is a thing that they got going on in, in Arizona already. But then I want to try and move that federally. And then there's something called proxy.vote where we, we rearranged the idea um, and have built a back end to support uh, the running of a proxy instead of a can instead of a politician where the proxy is uh, legally bound to vote in Washington in total accord with the way that their constituency is voting on the app and their constituency is privy to every vote. And then I'm working on, you know, this divestment thing. Um, I, I, I started this thing called howtodivest.org, and now we're going to do something called Divest United and unite the environmental movement with the private prison system movement and get these banks to divest and get L.A. to divest from Wells Fargo. And I'm writing letters to City National Bank, and I'm talking with you and I'm making music, and I, I'm scoring, and I'm making a whole album, but then I'm also uh, editing a movie. I just finished a documentary. I have a screenplay I'm writing. So, like, when I start talking about, you know, it's, like, funny because all of these things are brilliant. So, for me, that's my, that's always traditionally been my lateralization of experience is not like, oh, I go on a hike and then I go surfing and then I work and then I love my lover and then I go to a party. It's no, I go from the novel to the music, to the pop song, to the, uh, uh, to, to the, to the political stuff, to, the, uh, to my thing in Detroit, uh, starting this co-op uh, community land trust with these amazing people in Detroit. Um, that's my sort of like broad, that's how I broaden my experiences traditionally. And then, you know, it starts, it starts, uh, we'll see how it goes. I'm going to start to try and like you start incorporating, you know, friendship, reincorporating friendship and, and uh, hanging out and going, you know, and doing things. I think what I'm going to do though, and what I've been doing lately is going to bed, at, trying to go to bed around 10 PM, waking up around seven mm. and forgetting entirely about nightlife stuff um and uh what i'm doing i'm a bit older than you but uh i get up at four uh, yeah and i i i have a, a sleeping loft behind me uh, yeah. so i sleep up there and i put the alarm like 25 feet away from where i'm sleeping at 4 a.m yeah. so i have, so to, get have up. to get up yeah I, I go to bed between eight and nine yeah and see i think going to, i've been going to bed at nine a little bit and it's it's amazing. I, lo I love it because everything that happens after that, even though the wee hours can be very, actually 4 a.m. Is, is, is 3 to 4, 5 a.m. Is, is some of my favorite time to create. Yeah. And in fact, that's a, you know, speaking of time, I think that that's very important. You either need to stay up late or get up early yeah. um, in order to really access uh, whatever the moon is sort of drawing out of the brain, the yeah. waters of the, the tides of the brain, yeah. Well, that's been, uh, that's been documented in many ancient traditions, the time before yeah. dawn. You know, they, 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 in, in Ayurveda and Chinese medicine, they, they say that's when the most fresh energy is available, about yeah. before the dawn. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, th thank you. And it was great talking to you too, man. Thank you, man. Yeah, thanks a lot. Are you going to be touring again anytime? Have you got any plans? Nope, stop touring. No touring? Yeah. That's one thing I, I, I cut out touring and I'm also trying to stop mixing.
so that I have more time to create and uh, and live. Yeah. Okay. Would would yeah. I mean? Have you, is is the band still together? Will, will you perform again? I don't know. We're on an indefinite hiatus. I'm not going to do it again until I feel the uh, ah. until I feel com the genuine compulsion to. I'm not going to do it for you know reasons of popularity or or anything like that or for the for the people. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Well, I know whatever you turn your attention to is going to be a gift. So. Yeah. Thanks. Well, I hope so. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, thanks a lot for the time. I really, really appreciate it. You've given. Yeah, me man. I'm glad I got got it in. Glad. Great words. Okay. All right. Cheers, brother. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Whoa. Well, I hope you loved that conversation. We've actually got plenty more Alex Ebert coming your way. I also interviewed him in Reno. And um, I also, um, as I record this for you now, I'm just about to get on a plane in a few days to fly to New Orleans where he lives. And we're going to make a series of video dialogues together. I am just so inspired. You know, there's about, I don't know, 15, 20 people in the world, I think, who just absolutely inspire me completely, who feel like the definition of radical brilliance. One was Leonard Cohen. But those 15, 20 people are going to be regular guests on this podcast, and you'll, you'll get to see who they are as time goes by. Coming up soon is Daniel Schmachtenberger, who's very high on that list as well. Okay, so as always with the Radical Brilliance podcast, I want to make sure that we get to transform what we hear here in the dialogues into something practical that you can implement in your life today, starting right away. So Alex talked in our conversation about two things that I think can be really helpful to us. The first was celestial archaeology, this notion that you can reach your hand into space and pull down a fragment and then a f another fragment and create uh, a mythical creature. And that's really something you can take with you in your, if you do a practice in the morning, if in, in the morning, if you, if you spend some time for sitting, for doing physical practice, for, for um, maybe walking, running, dancing. Also, you can take some time to, to write with the intention that each day you're going to pull down another fragment of of the mythical creature and you're going to create a bird that you can fly on. So that's celestial archaeology, which is something you can definitely bring. But the practice today that I really want to encourage you to do right away was where Alex talked about throwing the football as far forward as possible and then sprinting to catch up with it. Let, let me remind you, he said, I think we all go through those kind of periods where we, some of us, where we feel lost and then we feel like we must become reborn. And for me, one way to do that is to throw the football far ahead of myself and then force myself to sprint to catch up with it. And that's what I did with Edward Sharp. I, Sharp, I projected the being that I wanted to be out there ahead of me, far beyond where I was personally at the time. And I projected a freer, more confrontational, more liberated version of myself into a vision of the future of me. And then it was my job. I took it on myself to start to play catch up to that vision and force my body to hurry up and get over there. So that's what I want to invite you 
radically brilliant friend to do today. I want to invite you to throw the football out as far as you can into the future, and then we're going to sprint to catch up with it. So what does that mean? I'm going to ask you to do a little journaling right after this podcast, or as soon as you can. And I recommend that you don't journal on a keyboard or a phone. I recommend you get yourself a a notebook. I like Moleskin. You know, it's a kind of fancy brand of notebook. It's a little bit more classy. And I actually use a fountain pen, you know, to write with real black ink in it from a quink ink bottle. Because when I use a fountain pen and a, and a real notebook, it actually, something happens. The transmission of depth is stronger than, for me anyway, than trying to, for example, type with my thumbs on a phone or use Siri or something. So I'm going to ask you to take your notebook and to vision what would be the most radically brilliant, totally contributing appearance of you. What would be the version of you that would be the most inspiring, that would make the greatest difference, so that when you do finally die one day, there would be not one thread of regret? You would know that you've lived fully, you've lived generously, you've lived brilliantly in every area of your life. I'm going to invite you now just to take a few minutes and just journal that. You can journal a vision of yourself maybe two years ahead, five years ahead, ten years ahead, as many years in the future as you need for you to be able to paint a picture of yourself without any restriction. What would be the version of you swept clean of mediocrity, swept clean of conformity, swept clean of fixation of your own needs, swept clean of mood swings? If you were thoroughly cleansed of everything that keeps you distracted, what would it take for you to be a woman or a man on fire? Making the greatest possible difference. So go ahead when, I, when, when we finish, go ahead and just do that for just five or ten minutes, paint a picture, and then you can ask yourself, okay, great. So now I've got a coherent vision of who I could be, the most contributing version of myself now. What's it going to take to start sprinting to catch up? What do I need to do today, tomorrow? What are the little steps I need to integrate into my life to catch up with that vision of myself? Maybe you could think of three practical steps you could take. Get up earlier in the morning, uh, stop drinking alcohol, or cut down, or um, uh, spend longer sitting, or go to dance, go to, go to a dance event. What are the things you need to do to bring your body into alignment with your vision? I invite you to go to radicalbrilliance.com our website, or go to Facebook forward slash Radical Brilliance. And if you scroll down in Facebook, you'll find the, the post about this particular podcast. You'll find it also in the podcast area of the website. And I'd love for you to share what happened when you did this practice. It would be great. And I will read that personally and, and get back to you on it. Looking forward to welcome you back to our next episode, which will be with another amazing, extraordinary voice. Our next guest is Daniel Schmachtenberger, the founder of the Neurohacker Collective, the inventor of qualia and many other nootropics that are in development right now. 
I think he's probably the most brilliant forward-thinking mind I've had any contact with in my life. It's like talking to somebody 50 or 100 years, living 50 or 100 years in the future, coming back to share with us our, our potential. Daniel Schmachtenberger is an amazing, amazing mind, and uh, he'll be, he'll, you'll be able to share what he has to say in episode three. Thanks for being here.